Welcome to NC Retold. A place where we get to know North Carolina. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Corey George. Today's episode of NC Retold is brought to us by Pilot Surveying and Engineering, providing civil engineering and land surveying services across the Carolinas. Check them out on the web at www.pilotse.com. Our guest today has 32 years of local law enforcement experience, a former county sheriff, and is currently one of only four governor-appointed parole commissioners. He's also known for his philanthropy through Give a Kid a Christmas. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Graham Atkinson. Well, I appreciate you doing this. Oh, absolutely. You're from Surrey County originally. I am. Yes, from sir. Siloam. Was you born in Downtown right? Siloam, North Downtown Carolina. Downtown Siloam. Okay. <laughs> so you were the the Siloam area there. People don't really under people don't realize how old the Siloam area is. I mean, tell me a little bit about uh, growing up in the in the downtown Siloam, and what what was different then that's uh, not the same today. Well, you know, the the look of the community is pretty much the same. It hadn't changed a tremendous amount, uh, except for the addition of some homes that have sprung up. But um, going back and thinking about my childhood there, there was such a sense of community. Um, neighbors looked after each other. Uh, they took care of the things that needed to be taken care of in the community. Um, you knew everybody that was there. Uh, if they went to church, you knew where they went to church. If right. they... Uh, were registered to vote you knew how they were registered uh, you knew who they were kin to um, uh, everybody it, life was just so intertwined with each other because for the most part it was a farming community um, there were some people that had you know what we used to call back in the old days public jobs but uh, most everybody farmed and and the centers of the community uh, socially and uh, as a matter of uh, just convenience um, were the schools, uh, the churches, and the store. That's where you saw your neighbors. That's where you caught up with what was going on. Right. Um, and it was so much different um, in terms of uh, uh, how often that we left the community. Uh, when Until I could drive uh, in the summer, when school was out, you said goodbye to your friends, and you saw them again when you started back to school because everybody was busy farming all summer. Right. Um, we went to Winston maybe twice a year. We went uh, to get school clothes before school started, and right. then we would go, uh, or my family at least, would go to the Christmas parade and go Christmas shopping, and, and that may be the only two times during the year that I saw Winston-Salem. What did you, I mean, you grew, you grew up farming. What did you, what what crop was the main one then? What, what would you, what, where did your family grow? Uh, our main crop was tobacco, just like most everybody else. Uh, we had some soybeans and some corn. We also had cows, but our cash crop was tobacco. Okay. So, so why do you think Siloam has changed? What's changed Siloam? I don't think that, that Siloam has changed any more than the rest of the world has. But the things, you know, when you say the community looked after each other, if there was a storm and there was a tree across the road, you didn't call DOT or a fire department. Uh, whoever was closest grabbed a chainsaw and a tractor and you cut the tree out of the road. Right. Uh, if your neighbor was... Uh, off the road, in the ditch, stuck. Uh, you didn't call a wrecker. Uh, everybody got together and helped him get out. Right. Uh, if somebody was sick, 
I remember neighbors, you know, one that had cancer that, you know, we, we helped them get their crops in and, and my dad cured tobacco for them. Um, if you had a tobacco barn burn, you didn't just go watch the fire. You helped clean up when it was over, if it was yours or somebody else's. That was back when you were curing with wood or? No, I'm not quite that old, okay. <laughs> but we did Sorry. use cure with oil. <laughs> okay. uh, and there, there were some people that I knew back in, in my very early years that still cured with wood, but uh, okay. we eventually went to gas. <laughs> That right. made things a lot easier. Right. Uh, so, so uh, is your family, your family's been in Siloam for a long time, Oh, right? yes, several generations. My my great-grandfather uh, and grandmother lived uh, very near where I live now. Uh, okay. My grandmother and grandfather, uh, their house is inside of the house where I live, which is also the house where I grew up. Okay. Uh, so we've been there for a long time. And that is that a part of the historic registry? Yes. Some of, some of that? Okay. Uh, as well as, you know, the, the there's a an old hotel building right near the railroad tracks in right. downtown Siloam, also on the historic registry. Uh, mm-hmm. It used to be a hotel, and there was a hardware store uh, on the bottom floor. Uh, at, at, was there a railroad stop there? Is that there was the hotel? Was there? there was a place that you could uh, get on and off the train, and at one time that was a, a busy economic center. Um a lot like Rockford was, right. where the other side of my family is from. Okay, okay. So, to bring up something uh, probably a little bit more personal, uh, a lot of our listeners may not have known about the Siloam Bridge collapse, but back in the 70s, right? 1975. And the bridge collapse, you, you were pulled out of that, out of the river, right? My whole family. Your whole family was. I mean... I mean, what do you remember about that? Oh, I remember everything about it. I've, I've told the story many times. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the bridge actually was within sight of our house. Mm-hmm. It was February 23rd, 1975. Um, uh, it was in a Sunday evening. Uh, and the way that, w- that our family, my immediate family, got involved, my grandparents, who lived next door, had gone to visit next-door neighbors that lived on the other side of us. Okay. When they came out, they heard uh, somebody calling for help. Well, they were my grandparents were in their 70s, and my aunt was with them. Uh, so they stopped at our house to get my father to go with them. Uh, they just didn't want to go down there by themselves. So when we heard I, the doorbell rang, I heard the conversation. I said, well, I want to go. And my sister said, well, I want to go. And so my mother said, well, if you're going, we'll all go. So we all piled in my grandparents' car in front of ours, um, if you're there now and look at it, the landscape's a little bit different because when the new bridge was put in, they changed the road and moved it from one spot to another. Mm-hmm. But at that time, you went uh, down a hill, then slightly up a ramp onto the bridge. But it was so foggy that night. Uh, I can't even describe to you. When people ask, you know, well, it's just the foggiest time I ever remember in my life. Um we were closely behind my grandparents who started up the ramp. Everything looked normal. And suddenly my dad hit the brakes really hard. Found out later that he saw their ta- their taillights of my grandparents' car drop out of sight. So they actually went further out into the river. Uh, their car turned upside down and landed on uh, what was the top of the bridge, the steel structure that was now in the water. Um, we got almost stopped and just went off, our family did, just right off the end, upside down and landed not in the water but on the bank with uh, what now was the 
the back end of the car was in front. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some water in that. Um, my sister and I have talked about it. We actually, as we were falling, turned and looked at each other in the back seat, you know, with both of us with this what is going on look on our face. You know, she's uh, two years older than I am. Uh, I remember the impact very clearly because it, uh, one of the things that, that made it hard for me to start wearing a seatbelt was I was not wearing a seatbelt that day, and had I been, I would have been crushed. Mm. Uh, it threw me over onto my sister, and the spot where I was sitting landed on the steel beam, and it just created a V in the roof that went all the way into the floorboard of the car. Mm. Um, when we hit, uh, you know, everybody was asking everybody, are you okay, are you alive? Uh, my dad uh, tried to get out. Couldn't get the door open, so he wound up kicking the door open, and he started taking us out one at a time. My mother's arm was crushed. Uh, her right arm, she was left-handed, uh, but her right arm was just completely crushed. Um, there was like a, a sack of bones near her elbow where all the bones had just been broken in little pieces. Mm. Um, he got my sister out, then he got uh, me out, put us on the bottom of the car, which was now the top of the car, and... Uh, told her to go up and start stopping traffic and for me to help my mother up. So um, just as we were on top of the car about to move, another car uh, tried to cross the bridge, came across, went over us. It turned upside down and landed on my grandparents' car. Um, Turns out those were folks that we knew. It was uh, uh, Bobby Mathis from over in uh, East Bend, a friend of my dad's. Um, so my sister got up and got the next car stopped. Uh, my mother and I got to the top, helped stop traffic there, and, and from there, more help started showing up. Uh, we didn't see my dad, though, for several hours because he, uh, when he got us safe, he went into the water, uh, checked and found that my grandparents were uh, already deceased, mm. um, got his sister out, and then he started getting people out before the rescuers got there. So that was, uh, it was a long night. Um, I can't imagine. And it was, um, you know, it changed a lot of lives. Right. Wow. And you were 10 at the time? I was 10 years old. Yes, sir. Mm. I mean, how do you even begin to, how do you, how can you even retell that without? Well, it's. It affected different people in different ways. You know, there were also, you know, two other people that were killed, which really is probably the the saddest part of that story, um, is that uh, the Needhams, um, uh, who I've gotten to know over time, um, uh, there were father, daughter, father, mother, and two daughters. Uh, they actually went in from the Yakin County side, but their vehicle remained upright, and they were all okay. And uh, the dad took his oldest daughter and went to get help. Uh, when he came back, uh, the current had taken the mother and the smaller child away. And mm. uh, they were recovered the next day. Um, you know, there was a couple that was uh, deaf and dumb, an older couple. Uh, and you know, my dad was trying to communicate with them there in the river. There were uh, uh, a couple of girls that were just in there like uh, late teens, early 20s. Um, Altogether, there were 20 people that were involved in it. 16 survived. Um, but 
having to be there every day and, and I still live in that same spot and I can look down there and see that very early after that um, I just made up my mind this is an experience that I had but it's not something that I'm going to allow to define me right um, everybody has bad things that happen to them this just happened to be a sensational bad thing right uh, but um, you know it's just you you know that it happened uh, there was a reason that it happened uh, everybody that was involved in it has got the same personal story that I do about it mm-hmm. uh, but you know I've had a lot of good things happen to me in life too so right. I'm not going to let that be the thing that I think about all day, every day. Sure. No, I understand. That's, that's a great way to, a great way to be. And being in law enforcement for so long, I'm, I'm certain that you've seen a lot of bad things as well. Maybe some good things, but I'm feel, feel like most of the time when the law's involved, it's not so good. Well, people didn't ever call us just to tell us how good everything was right. going. <laughs> right. Uh, so, I mean, you joined, the Surrey County Sheriff's Department when you turned 21, mm-hmm. right? My 21st birthday. And, I mean, what what jarred your interest in law enforcement? Um, was there something that happened between between the the accident and your 21st birthday or did you were you always interested or, you know, what kind of what kind of jarred that interest for you? You know, that's when when you ask that question, I, people ask me that have asked me that a hundred times, and I've probably given a hundred different answers because there's so many different reasons. I always had an interest in law enforcement. Uh, in fact, I, I did not realize this until I had announced that I was running for sheriff. But uh, the lady who was my preschool teacher uh, sought me out to tell me after I announced to run for sheriff that in preschool that I had appointed myself sheriff for preschool. Okay. And it was, yeah, it was taking care of the people that, <laughs> that weren't doing what they were supposed to do there. Okay. Um, but yeah, you know, I've always had a real, uh, a real, I guess the word hatred for drugs. Right. And that was where most of my career was focused in mm-hmm. one way or another. Uh, I've never liked people that picked on other people. Right. Um, and I think those things, uh, you know, taking care of people that weren't able to take care of themselves uh, or standing up for people that, that couldn't or wouldn't stand up for themselves was, was probably really the driving force. Okay. And so you attended, you, I mean, you grew up in Siloam, and that's, was that an East Surrey district at the time? Surrey Central. Surrey Central district? Okay. Um, you, you can see the line okay. between the two there. Okay. So went to Surrey Central I mean, what happened between high school and the sheriff's department? Uh, went to uh, Surrey Community College for a while. Okay. Uh, started out with, like, college parallel classes. Mostly went because I didn't have an option. Uh, uh, my parents would not have any other choice for that. I kind of floated through, never really found anything that I was very interested in. Played a lot of rooks, skipped a lot of class. Okay. Um, one day I, I looked through the, the uh, student book of classes uh, started looking at law enforcement classes, uh, signed up from that point on, uh, dean's list, honor student, and uh, mostly straight A's all the way through, um, and never finished that degree because I went to work at the sheriff's office, okay. and with the schedule we were working, um, that just wasn't possible at the time. We worked seven days in a row and got two days off. Mm-hmm. Um 
but years later, uh, I went back and finished my two-year degree and, and also went through uh, the Gardner-Webb program there at Surrey Community Okay, uh, and got my uh, bachelor's degree uh, in social sciences with a concentration in law enforcement. But uh, I really that was the only thing that I ever really knew other than farm that I wanted to do, right. and I knew I couldn't make a living farming. So Yeah, well, that's, I'm thinking a lot of people had that same realization. Yeah. If you had to... Uh, you had to pick one event uh, growing up that you think about or relive, uh, you know, a happy time or something. Give me a story or something that happened on the farm that kind of always sticks in your mind. <laughs> oh, uh, probably a good thing my father's passed away. He would probably wouldn't want me to tell this, but uh, I've told my, I've relayed this to my children over time. Um, I worked with my dad a lot. We were always together, and yeah, it was a father and a son, and uh, things didn't always go right on the farm. Sometimes you just had those days where right. things break and everybody's hot and tired. Uh, we were having one of those days, and my dad told me to do something. I don't even remember what he told me to do, but I spouted out a big mouthful about it, and as soon as I did it, I knew I had made a mistake. But I was just, you know, I, I was young. And he quit what he was doing and he started walking towards me. And when he got to where I was, he reached up and put his hands on my shoulder and he said, Son, you see that apple tree right over there? And I said, Yes, sir. He said, I remember one day I was out working with my daddy, kind of like me and you are. And I said, Yes, sir. He said, My daddy told me to do something. And I was hot and tired. And I spit out a big mouthful, kind of like you just did. And I said, yes, sir. He said, right under that apple tree is where I landed. And I said, yes, sir. And he patted me on the back and said, now let's get to work. And I knew that meant this is your one and only warning. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so I was 22 when he passed away. And to my knowledge, I never spoke back to him that way again. Right. Mm. Uh, but that that taught me um, a different way to handle things, yeah, you know, right. to get your point across, and and I hope that that relayed on to the way that I that I taught my children. Uh, it was short and it was quick, but it made a an, a lasting impact on me. Right. Oh, I I imagine, and that's <laughs> probably a mistake you only make one time, uh, and it sticks with you. <laughs> so, I mean, joining the sheriff's department at twenty one, I mean, what was the sheriff's department like then what was what was kind of going on at that time and you know what were the what were you getting the most calls about well it's, it's totally different uh than it was now um i was one of the last people in north carolina that actually started work before i had any formal training um i plowed tobacco till lunchtime that day then during our lunch break i went to dobson i got sworn in picked up my car came home Finished the work day, took a nap, and then 11 o'clock that night I went to work on third shift. Uh, I got a uniform out of the junk closet that they had turned in. I had to borrow a badge from another deputy because uh, they didn't have any extras. I bought my own gun, bought my own handcuffs. Um, the car that they assigned me had 127,000 miles on it. Uh, another deputy had turned it in. The, the ashtray was full of cigar ashes, and it had this big blue bubble light on top that uh in the winter time 
Is this like what Barney had? Oh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but Barney had better equipment than we had then. <laughs> but in the winter, when you turned the thing on, if it was cold, it had to warm up before it would start to rotate. So it would just sit there and glow. And then you could start hearing this. Uh, and the radio, you had to turn it on. It was t- all tubes, so you had to turn it on and let it warm up. And um, yeah, the, the calls, then one of the first things one of the older guys told me, um, and you're talking about now in 1985, he said, you see anything moving after 2 o'clock in the morning, stop it because they're up to something. And, and literally the only thing moving between 2 o'clock and about uh, 6 or 5.30 was the paper guy. And I don't know how many times I stopped different people delivering papers because they told me if it's moving, stop it. Well, after right. you learn the paper route, you know not to stop that guy right. anymore. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, what we did a lot of then, uh, you know, there was a lot of domestics, uh, a lot of the, you know, drunken disruptive stuff, of course, break-ins, and, and uh, you know, we had the occasional shooting, that kind of thing. But as far as the volume of calls, uh there's no comparison between what it was uh, at that time and, and what it turned into before I left. Why do you think that is? Uh, more people. I think people tend to call um, law enforcement for things now that they didn't. Uh, you know, I can remember a time uh, that you know, if neighbors had a disagreement that they got together and worked it out. Uh, but, you know, people call for a lot of things now that probably are, are not really – reach the level of law enforcement issues right uh but just the sheer number of people there are more people uh in the county um there's more access to phones you know nobody had a cell phone then that you could just oh, pick yeah, up the phone true. and call you had to you had to go back to the house call right the landline. Yeah. and sometimes you calm down between the time you know right. you'd get there uh but and it's just um at that time surrey county was i feel like a little more closely knit uh sure people um People just behave differently. You think people are worse now than they were then? Uh, I don't know if they're inherently worse in their soul. I think that their behavior is worse. Uh, at one time, there was some social stigma attached to uh, having a law enforcement encounter or being charged with a crime. You know, that that kind of stuff. Shame right. associated and, with it. You know, a lot of times, kids in my generation didn't get in trouble not because we weren't inclined to be mischievous but because we either didn't want to disappoint our parents or didn't want to not worried about what the court would do worried about what your parents would do yeah um now you know you see uh, uh, as i was getting towards the the end of my career that uh where parents uh, were defending their children when they had done something that was absolutely wrong yeah um and that there really wasn't a social stigma attached to uh attached to drugs attached to uh, abuse of alcohol attached to, um, you know, uh, even stealing. Uh, yeah. It's just society has a different attitude now that, uh, that tends to, uh, look for a, a, an excuse or a reason for somebody's behavior rather than just say, this is wrong. Don't do it. Right. I wonder why that is wonder when did that when do you think you if you had to identify a point in time where you started seeing where you started to notice you know maybe people aren't acting the way they used to be when when do you think that would have been there there's several things that i think were factors and i would have to think for a minute about exactly when they were uh 
you're starting to sound like my wife now. She's a she's a psychologist, taught okay, psychology okay. by trade. And when we first started dating, oh uh, man, I bet that was fun. Uh, I would uh, <laughs> I would go see her, you know, after work and be telling her about something that happened, and she'd say, "Well, I wonder why they did that." And say, "Bless, honey, I don't care why they did it. My job's to find out who did it and put them in jail." What? How's that make you feel? <laughs> well, do you think it's? A, I don't care. I just don't care. <laughs> you know. That, that was my younger self. My older self, yeah, I did learn as I got older that there are some legitimate reasons, that, that things that if you know about people that you can help modify their behavior. Uh, but, you know, when, when we got away from community schools, uh, yeah, that was uh, I think that was a big change. Um, uh, had larger groups of kids together from different places, mm-hmm. uh, which brought in you know, uh, different groups of parents that didn't know each other. Um, and a lot, you know, when parents started working, uh, getting the families weren't working on the farms together anymore. People were getting jobs and, you know, some of them were different shifts, different hours. Uh, a lot of the kids didn't have anybody at home when they got home from school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, I guess late eighties, early nineties that we started seeing a lot of that here, uh, as farming started to fade out, you know, people had to get other jobs and go other places. I don't know if that's the absolute cause, but that was people too tired back then from farming all day to get in trouble i guess and they were always home you know you were yeah. always together with your parents you rarely got out of sight of them uh, right and if you did you better have your chores done when they got back they were going to know if you were doing something other than what you were supposed <laughs> right. to be doing so uh, so so your wife was a psych is or was a psychologist well she's a psychologist she's trained as a psychologist okay. she spent most of her career in education okay uh, at surrey community college and then retired at north stokes okay so I mean, that's going to bring up, I'm going to ask an interesting question here. What's life like being married to a psychologist? <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, on the off chance she listens to this podcast, it's the most perfect arrangement you can ever imagine, Corey. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> and my daughter's also a, a clinical therapist. So, okay. You know, All right. Man, I just I learned not to talk lot. much yeah. at home. You, know? you have a good time on Sunday evenings at dinner. Well, I'm not going to press you too hard on that because I don't want you get I don't want to get you in trouble. So, if you had to pick uh if you had to pick one story from working at the sheriff's office that was just like just just blew your mind on something that happened or somebody did something a certain way or I mean, what what story just immediately jumps to mind? You know, People ask me that question they have over the years a lot. And, again, whatever comes to mind is the story I tell them usually because there are just so many things over the course of the career. But one of my favorite things, um, I don't get to as much anymore because I'm not here as much as I was, but uh, when I used to speak at churches a lot, um, one of the stories that I always told them was because I I really believe, I know without a shadow of a doubt, I don't believe uh, that the Lord has looked after me through my law enforcement career and is – has kept me away plays times I should have been dead times I should have been hurt uh, cases that shouldn't have been solved that uh, that I can't take any credit for cause the Lord just stepped in and took care of it but um, we had a guy that was uh, dealing a lot of methamphetamine and this was back in the earlier days of methamphetamine uh, and he was taking a lot also and he was getting uh, crazier and crazier and he was uh, he was kind of a dangerous guy anyway. Uh, but when he got jacked up on meth and was up for days and, you know, he's, uh, he was becoming progressively more mentally unstable and dangerous. 
And we had developed a source that was able to purchase methamphetamine from it. So, and the source would wear a wire. And we could hear the discussions going on during the uh, – and I'll get to the, where it was in a second as far as the, the, describe the location so it'll make more sense. But we couldn't get real close. But, you know, you could hear him say, I know they're watching me. I know they're coming for me. If I go back, I'm going to be an habitual felon. I'm going back forever. And, said, you know, and one day he said, I've made up my mind. If they come for me and I let them take me, nobody will ever remember me. But if I take a bunch of them with me, they'll be writing books and making movies about me. So we decided after that that this has gone as far as it could go. It was time to take him. The problem was we had to, he lived in a trailer that was way off the road, uh, way, way off the road. And the road to get to it wasn't really a road. It was more of a path. Uh, there wasn't any, no cover anywhere around it. It just stuck right out in the middle of a grass field, uh, you know, hundreds of yards from wood lines or anything else. So we had to decide how we're going to approach this knowing full well that he kept a loaded AK-47 propped up beside the door. In fact, at times during the, uh, when our source was buying from him, he would think he heard something, and he'd just open the door and start spraying uh, with that AK-47. We could hear him just bang, 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 bang. So um, it all kind of fell on me. Uh, I was in charge of the narcotics unit at the time. As it, you know, we got to come up with a plan. We got to get in, in here, and we got to take this guy, and it's probably not going to be a good situation so we had uh we got our plan together and you know you always got that sick feeling in the pity of your stomach because you're getting ready to ask these guys to step out there and and you know somebody may not come back um and i always had uh, anytime we did a raid or something i, I always had the, the same little prayer that i kind of went over and i just say you know, lord take care of everybody us and the bad guys and just don't let anybody get hurt and just ask for the strength, wisdom, confidence, and courage to do what you'd have us to do. But we had a chaplain at the sheriff's office at that time, and I'd ask him to come after the briefing. And said, yeah, I told him the situation briefly, and I said, you yeah, know, I just want you to have prayer with us before we go. So we got ready. We got our briefing done. Everybody had their assignments. We got in a circle. Uh, everybody's holding hands. And the preacher started praying. And in his prayer, he said, said, Lord, uh, blind the eyes and deafen the ears of this man that they're about to go after so that nobody gets hurt and i'm i'll have to confess i was standing there thinking really blind the eyes and deafen the ears you know i'm thinking build a a wall of protection and you know Mm -hmm. but and all the way there i kept thinking yeah Really, David Cox was a guy's name. Uh, he was our chaplain. Uh, everybody loved him, but thought blind the eyes and deafen the ears. So we execute our plan. We get to the house, nothing. Got an open door, didn't come out. We hit the door with a ram. As we go through, he's standing in the living room with his back to the door with a set of headphones like the ones that we're wearing now, listening to music, just dancing and swaying to the music with a pistol in his back pocket and that AK-47 sitting right beside the door. So we go in before he even knows we're there. He's down on the floor and handcuffed. And I get to the back of the house, just clearing the rest of the house out. Uh, And as we got done with that, it hit me. Blind the eyes and deafen the ears. 
He was looking the opposite way. He was wearing headphones and couldn't hear us. And I went and found the chaplain later and said, I want to apologize to you because I was a little, you know, with your prayer, but this is what happened. Uh, I bet that give you some cold chills. Oh, it, yes, it does. And you just think how much differently that could have turned out. Oh, yeah. Uh, and if that's not a specific answer to a specific prayer, I don't know that you'll ever experience one. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I mean, in situations like that, I mean, I mean, how how often – how often are we having encounters like that with people in Surrey County? Oh, it, it's almost a daily basis. Uh, people, you know. I mean, it, so, you know, you're talking about methamphetamine use, and I suppose whatever early days that was. Um, is is drugs becoming a worse problem in the rural areas? I mean, we I feel like that's something that we occasionally hear about more often than not. Um, about especially opioids? Well, see, and that's the thing with drugs is that it's constantly changing. I started uh, in about 1986 uh, doing drug work part-time with our narcotics division. Uh, back in the 80s, it was cocaine. Uh, that was the hot thing. And so we were working mostly cocaine cases. Then all of a sudden, uh, crack became a thing out west. We heard about it, but it hadn't shown up here. We started seeing the first little bit of crack, and... Uh, those of us that were involved were talking to the powers that be said you know we're going to have to have some more help this is coming this is going to take us we need people we need resources uh couldn't get anybody to hear us well then you know what happened with crack uh well you know crack came in and crack was the hot thing and we thought man this is terrible nothing can ever be any worse than crack was uh then meth showed up and you're like well you know meth is an out west motorcycle gang stuff it's not here and all of a sudden when it got here it got here in a tidal wave and again we were screaming we got to have some help we got to have some resources you know these are things that we can do but it takes money and it takes people couldn't get anybody to hear us but we were sure meth was as bad as it was going to get then i showed up which is a I says to methamphetamine what crack is to cocaine. It's just a more purified form of methamphetamine. Okay. I have no idea. So. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's just a way of... I'm not even to... certain I've ever even heard of that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we were like, you know, this is just crazy because this stuff is so potent and so powerful and it's so easy to make. Uh, again, no, no help coming as, as much as we begged. So is this a specialized unit inside of the sheriff's office? Is, it is. Are you getting federal help? Is there federal, I mean, the, are there federal agents stationed here in Surrey County or in this region? We have. What's their involvement? We have regional offices that you can call, and depending on what your relationship is with the people there at the time and, you know, kind of who's there, we always had a real good uh, relationship with the feds when I was there in the drug unit and had guys that we could call on, ATF especially, helped us a lot, uh, they were, had some friends in DEA that were there to help us. Um, what kind of help would they bring, just out of curiosity? They can bring people. They can bring equipment. Uh, okay. They can bring money. You know, sometimes you need a large sum of buy money that, you know, mm. uh, we didn't have $100,000 in cash laying around, but they did. Right. Um, so, uh, and they brought their expertise. And also, you know, our badge um, jurisdiction ended at the county borders. Sure. Theirs goes anywhere. So if you're with them, you can go there with them and. And since drugs don't know a jurisdictional boundary, it's nice to have people with that jurisdiction. We can go into Virginia, go to other counties. Uh, and lots of our connections had places that led uh, 
as far back as into Columbia. Um, you know, we had people that were taken off in Florida. Um, there were a lot of big cases that happened at that time that folks in Surrey County don't have any idea that there was any part of it here, but there was. Uh, if you go back and look at, um, you know, like cocaine cowboys that you see on HBO, uh, there's a, uh, a whole story about that and some of those folks at that time that, that we had things that were uh, cases that were intermingled with some of those folks that they're talking about there. Wow. That's, uh, uh, as a resident, that's doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy. People have no clue, and it's just a whole subculture that goes on right around folks, and they never know it's even there. I mean, it's I can go through parking lots and see drug deals happening uh, that people are just walking by, and they have no idea what's even going on. Mm. That's that's kind of scary, actually. <laughs> now that you bring that up, uh, but you uh, know the thing you mentioned opioids that that was the latest thing. Uh, you know, mostly pain pills, but now fentanyl uh, is what's taking everybody away, and it's just killing people. Uh, it actually comes out of China, and it is you can put enough on the head of a pen to kill you. Uh, it's just um, what, what's I don't understand what. What's people's fascination with it? I don't understand. Well, um, is it a personality disorder or something you think, or is it? I mean, I I, I, don't, I don't I just I don't I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't. I suppose I would say you don't have an I don't have an addictive personality. But well, what I used to tell people when um, uh, I'd talk to civic groups or you know, and everybody always wants. Uh, to talk about the jail, you know, and, and what they think you should be doing in the jail. Uh, one of the things that I found is that we had a few people in jail who were just couldn't make bond. They just didn't have resources. weren't really bad folks, hadn't done anything really that bad. They just they couldn't make a bond. We had some that were inherently evil people. But the biggest group had three things in common. They... Uh, tended to be followers, not leaders. Uh, they didn't have good decision-making skills. They didn't have very high IQs, and drugs made them feel good. And that really is the thing I think we always, uh, and I'm going to answer your question now. I know I've talked a lot about that. But um, one of the things that I always thought that we did wrong with drug education was we would come at kids with, um, especially back in the early days of trying to figure out what to do about it, you know, if you take this, it's going to kill you. Well, you know, a lot of kids are sitting there thinking, well, no, it's not. You know, my dad does that every night. It's not going to kill you. Um, and most of the time it's not, you know. Um, or we would tell them, you know, all the, the, the worst horror stories that were not likely scenarios, uh, but we were never honest and said, yeah, you know, it's going to make you feel good for a little while. Uh, but... Eventually, it's going to go away, and these are the problems that happen after that. Uh, we never got around to admitting that drugs do make people feel good, and that really is one of the reasons that people do them is just to feel good for a little while. Mm. And once they do that, then then the, they try it and they become addicted. After that, they don't have a choice. Uh, I mean, what's your opinion on the, I would say, cultural movement uh, nationwide really of the legalization of marijuana i think it's a as an old narc and an old cop i i don't like the idea of doing it i understand the argument 
uh, for doing it, and I believe it's something that is going to happen uh, eventually in North Carolina like it has other places. But uh, I don't like the idea of when uh, a problem gets hard that we just uh, quit trying. Right. I don't like just throwing our hands up and saying, well, you know, we know all the the negatives, but it's just really hard, so we're just not going to do anything about it. Um, we're going to make some money off of it because we're going to tax it. Exactly. That, and, you know, it, it takes away, um, yeah. on the good side of it, I guess, there are people that, that I have known. Uh, a lot of people know folks that have uh, charges on their record, especially when they were kids that were just small amounts of marijuana that, you know, they went on to do good stuff, but they're, they're, they are still carrying that. Uh, mm-hmm. that stigma with them if they're trying to get a job or apply for a school. Uh, you know, I, I could make the argument both ways, but uh, but I'm going to come down on the let, let's don't just give up and quit because right. it's hard to do. Hmm. So you were the D.A.R.E. officer for several years, right? Yeah, and, about 15. And so, I mean – what does that What does that mean? I remember you, as a dare <laughs> officer, but I'm not. I want you to tell me what the dare officer means, and tell me how'd you get into that role, and you know, as having interactions with, um, I'd say, I mean, that's younger kids. What nine, fifth grade? Yeah, nine, mm-hmm. ten, eleven year old, somewhere in that neighborhood. I'm almost afraid to ask if you have any memorable stories associated with those kids. Oh, it's tons. Yeah, tons. <laughs> um, but to answer the first part of your question first, DARE uh, is an acronym for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. It started in Los Angeles uh, back in the 1980s and eventually became a worldwide program. Uh, and you know, at the time, it was, was heralded as probably the best drug education program that had ever been created. Um, and the idea at the time was to go into the exit grade of the elementary school, whatever that was in Surrey County, that was fifth grade. A lot of places it's six, some places it's seventh. But there was a, a standard curriculum that we would go in each week and, and, and didn't teach as much about drugs as we really, I think, tried to teach life skills like, um, you know, how do you make a good decision or how do you deal with peer pressure or how do you develop a support system or you know, how can you maintain your self-esteem? Um, and all those things were related to drugs because, you know, research had showed that, you know, these were some of the reasons that people allowed themselves to get involved in it. Uh, later on, it became how do you avoid being involved in a gang as the program expanded. Um, but the what I always like to tell people at D.A.R.E. graduations was, you know, I can give you this long explanation of, of D.A.R.E. and what it is, but this is what it really comes down to, that our philosophy in Surrey County when the D.A.R.E. program started and when I was their officer and on through as I was sheriff, is God don't make no junk. You know, every kid is important, and every kid has potential. Uh, and that was one thing I always tried to point out at their graduation to them, is that you, know, you have a responsibility to yourself. You know, God didn't create you to be a drug addict. Uh, and he didn't make any junk, so this is why we're here. Uh, and that's a lot easier for people to carry away and keep in their head than it is a 15-minute explanation about, you know, what all you do there. But right. that was um, that was one of the things that, that was one of the big blessings in my life was to get to do that. Um, at the same time, I was also working narcotics because in those days they didn't care how much you worked. They didn't have to pay you any extra. So 
I literally was working 18 hours a day. I'd be to work school at eight o'clock in the morning. I'd go home at one o'clock the next morning. And I'd, I was young and single and I just, you know, uh, had the best of both worlds. I got to be the dare officer during the day, got to go put the bad guys in jail at night. So, um, it never really was a job. Well, that's good. I, I mean, that's awesome to hear your optimism and I'm, I'm sure you had a lot of positive impact on tons of kids in Surrey County. Well, there was about, uh, one time I figured it up somewhere around 7,000 kids that, uh, that I taught, um, Later, I put some of them in jail. Uh, some of them became officers. I wound up when I was sheriff hiring some kids to work at the sheriff's office that I'd taught them there. Um, in fact, I was uh, working in Raleigh uh, just uh, about a year or so ago, and I was walking through the, the back parking lot um, and heard somebody uh, yell, Sheriff. Uh, and out of habit, I turned to look, and it was a girl that I'd talked that went to school uh, right over here at Pilot Mountain, uh, Pilot Mountain Elementary School, that was, uh, at that time, was a probation officer, and they were meeting in the back parking lot getting ready to, to do a mission. And she came over and hugged me, and, and we talked for a few minutes, and she wound up dropping by to see me a couple of times there when, when she was in town. Okay. Um, there's been, uh, and I could tell you a thousand of those uh, people that I ran into. Uh, one guy I ran into at a, a sheriff's association meeting just a few months ago. He's a vendor working for a law enforcement supply company. And uh, he said, I heard your voice. I did, couldn't see you, but I could hear you talking on the other side of this canopy over here, and I knew it was you. <laughs> <So> <laughs> he's 30-some years old now. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. That's uh, very interesting. So I, uh, as a Surrey County native, I'm almost afraid to ask. Are there any specific groups, and you don't have to tell me as much as you don't want to, um, but is there are there some known players in Surrey County that are bad operators that you just can't quite get your hands on, or people that you you're that that have been maybe under surveillance for several years that you just know are bad operators, but you just can't get, or have you, are you, are most of the people that the sheriff's office are having interactions with, are they pretty much new or are you getting a bunch of the same people over and over again? Well, before we left, I was starting to arrest the grandchildren, the people that I'd arrested early in my career. So there's a lot of that, but a lot of folks that have moved in, but, um, yeah, there are, Maybe not the the people that would immediately come to mind or, or groups that would immediately come to mind when you, you ask the question that you ask. Um, but Surrey County, because of its uh, 77 and 74, uh, we got two rural airports. Um, so it I wouldn't classify it as a hub, but uh, there's a lot of traffic that comes through here, and there are um, – uh, drug trafficking orga- organizations that use Surrey County uh, a lot, and not just Surrey County. It's traditionally what happens uh, all over the United States is, is that the more metropolitan areas is, is where most of the action is. That's where the money goes. The rural uh, places are used more for stash houses um, and for moving product around. Um, but yeah, there are organizations that uh, that may be involved to some extent or other, um, but 
a lot of times what happens is those people keep their hands clean. Hmm. Uh, they deal more with uh, uh, act as an accountant that know where what's supposed to be dropped off and what's supposed to be picked up and where the money's supposed to go, uh, but not actually touching uh, anything. Uh, so, yes, part of an organization probably not exactly the way people would envision envision it to be part of an organization right uh and and a lot of times uh around those things are uh individuals that um may be involved in other criminal activity not related to the organization uh so it gives it a a, a picture of being bigger than it or more organized than it really is mm-hmm. Interesting. What uh, what's the what's the gang situation like in North Carolina? This area is that is are we seeing gangs be a, a real issue in the rural areas or more so now? Uh, started just in the last few years um, in the more urban areas, um, uh, you, Durham County, uh, Alamance County, New Hanover. Uh, Wake, Mecklenburg, you know, even in Forsyth, um, you know, you've got a greater population. So if if a percent of the population is involved in gangs, then the more people you have, the more gang members you're going to have. Sure. But uh, we do have some here. Um, a lot of times they're in and out, not maybe not necessarily living here, but they uh, have relatives or, or connections that are in and out of here. Uh, a lot of them are more loosely affiliated uh I always used to say what what I was seeing at the time when I was at the sheriff's office and we first started seeing it was the ones that couldn't cut it in the bigger places came here to kind of set up operations. Um, but we don't have a anything like the problem that they have in other places. But sure. it, it's just a matter of time. Uh, it, it's coming. That does not sound promising. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, one thing I did learn when I was sheriff, I would go – to the sheriff associate there's a hundred sheriffs in north carolina i'd go to the meetings and we would all sit around and talk and um sheriffs will talk to each other about things that they won't talk to anybody else in the world about and i never failed when i would leave one of those meetings and come back i would realize that what i thought was a major problem to a lot of these guys was a minor inconvenience and compared to them we didn't have any problems uh so I always left there, you know, loving where I worked uh, and and being proud of where I was because the things that we thought were just terrible, terrible problems were just run of the day, everyday routine for them. Yeah. So we're very fortunate where we live, and and we're gonna have crime in, anywhere you go. There's yeah. there's not a place that's free from it, and there never will be. Hmm. How do you deal with? I guess mentally, how do you deal with knowing some of that? Knowing when you go home at night that maybe there's some bad player out there that you didn't get, or maybe you had to see something that you just can't unsee. I mean, how do you deal with that at night? My faith. Uh, there are things that, uh, you know, the, the things that probably haunt me the most are things that had to do with children, uh, especially being a dad myself, you know. But, um, like I said earlier, you know, bad things happen. Uh, mm-hmm. But you got to remember, you know, I, a lot of good things happen too. Sure. 
Uh, but you know, good things I, that happen don't typically make the news as often. That's right. But you know, through through prayer and and through faith and through just the fact that, um, well, I had a <laughs> one day years ago after a particularly little bad run of time. It's, I think it's when I was lieutenant in narcotics. We just had is one of those. I, I just had a bad run of stuff, and I got to work one day, and there was a note taped to my door that said. Be thankful for problems. If they were less difficult, someone with less ability would have your job. <laughs> and so when I've had to deal with bad things, I've thought, you know, the Lord put me there for a reason. Sure. Uh, and so you just, um, a lot of times officers tend not to talk about the, if you get a group together, they're never talking about the the times they were scared or the bad things. They're, they're talking about the funny things that happened. And uh, Give me a funny story. Give me a lighthearted, funny story. <laughs> oh, good grief. You put me on the spot now. <laughs> Anytime you ask, it's hard to come up with one. Um, oh. Usually they involve, you know, officers doing things they'd rather you didn't. Because <laughs> okay. they did something really stupid. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, this, was, this was one That's of the funnier things that ever happened. About some, we can hear about some deputies. That's fine. Uh, I'll tell you one on myself. Um. Many years ago, uh, before my wife and I started dating, I want to be clear about that, there was a, a, a girl that I had, had noticed and had developed an interest in. And um, we had made arrangements to meet for supper one night. Uh, I was working second shift, like I said, I was working seven days in a row. So you know, if you were going, it was hard to find a time. So we had made arrangements to, to eat supper. Uh, and I told the guys on the squad, I said, you know, I need off from I don't know, 8 to 9 o'clock, whatever it was. I said, I'll answer every call the rest of the night. You all just please let me have this time between 8 and 9 o'clock. They said, okay, fine, we'll do that. So about 15, 20 minutes till 8, I went around behind the school, Franklin Elementary School, and parked and thought, I'm just going to stay here out of the way, not getting anything because – I can be over to the restaurant, you know, in five minutes. So just about eight minutes till time. My radio keys up. Ten sixty-five in progress at the pantry. Ten sixty-five is an armed robbery. It was at the pantry on um, South Franklin Road, which was just right down the road from where I was. So I picked up the radio, said, I'm on the way. So I take off down there, and I'm there in, in less than a minute. And as I pull up, there's a car backing out of a parking place, spinning wheels, smoke blaring, you know. Uh, and I jump out of the car, gun in hand, you know, take this guy through the window outside, put him in a set of handcuffs, and an off-duty deputy that had a radio in his vehicle pulled in the parking lot and said, are you all right? What do you need? And I said, watch this guy. I'm going inside. So he stays out there with him. I walk in, can't find the cashier. The clerk can't find anybody anywhere. And so, you know, he's got a hostage. Is this guy out here just got cold feet? What's happened? So I start checking the store. I'm looking around. I go around the coolers. Nothing. Nobody. Didn't want to call out because didn't know if, you know, so in a minute, I hear the, the door open, and the clerk steps out from the back. 
And I said, are you okay? And she was real nonchalant, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. I said, is there anybody else in here? She's like, no. I said, well, you're sure you're okay? She said, well, yeah, but do you have any idea how to turn this alarm off? Because I tripped it a while ago accidentally, and, and I don't know how to shut it off, and I can't get my manager. I said, so, you, you hadn't been robbed? Well, no. Uh-huh. Oh, no. This guy's laying out here in the parking lot and set of handcuffs. <laughs> so I said, okay. I walked back outside, and then I noticed. I didn't look that close before. This is a kid's like 17 years old. He just got this new car. He's just out there showing himself. So I walked over to him. He looked up at me, and he said, Man, y'all take spinning tires serious, don't you? And I looked at my watch, and I still got time to get to the restaurant. So I said, yeah, but if you promise you'll never do it again, I'm going to let you go. He said, no, sir, I won't. I said, fine, get out of here. <laughs> I made my date that night. Yeah, he probably changed his life. <laughs> oh. That's pretty funny. I never did know who he was or what happened to him after that, but I'm sure he's probably told that story somewhere also from a different point of view. But. Yeah, well, I'm sure he probably went home put that car up for sale. Uh, uh, that's pretty funny. So if you had to uh, – I mean, what uh, – you worked in the sheriff's departments for years before you decided to run for sheriff. What, what, what made you decide to run for sheriff? Well, it was something I had had in the back of my mind uh, for a long time. Um, you know, was, you have to kind of weigh those things out career-wise because, uh, you know, I had a lot of years in. Uh, if you run and lose, then, you know, you're kind of out and, you know, retirement and all those things are gone. But um, I was trying to get myself prepared if to do If you run and lose, the, you think the incoming sheriff's going to fire you? Most, Almost 100% of the time. Really? Now, that did not happen in my case when I won. Uh, that you know, the, the guy uh, who ran against me, who's now the current sheriff, you know, we were friends, and, and he and his people ran a, a really hard-fought, clean campaign, and we all were friends at the end of it, and he stayed on and, and you know, ended up retiring and then coming back later and running. That's not the way it normally happens. Normally, it just... Uh, you're out because uh, there are not many people that can work together in that environment after having gone through that. Sure. Um, but uh, Connie Watson, who was the sheriff at the time, uh, just kind of popped up one day and said, I've decided I'm retiring and I want you to run. And I had about uh, 15 minutes to make up my mind. Uh, and uh, it was something I'd always wanted to do. I just, the timing was, you know, wasn't something that I got to pick out, but uh, once again, you know, it's one of those things that you you pray about and you you try to listen for guidance, and then you just go on faith, uh, mm-hmm. and it worked out. So, what's a sheriff do day to day? Well, what's, what do you do all day? Most people don't know this, but the sheriff is the only local constitutional officer in the North Carolina state constitution. Uh, when it was written back in seventeen seventy six. It states that there will be a sheriff in each county and that he is entitled to two deputies. And he has three responsibilities, uh, which is security at the courthouse, uh, serving the civil papers, and maintaining a jail. 
Uh, those are the constitutional duties that the sheriff has. Now, over time, of course, with uh, sheriffs have taken on other duties and other things have been assigned by statute. Um, but it's really kind of divided into different sections that you've got. Um, you know, the jail is, is just a, a entity into itself uh, that uh, requires a lot of time. So you, you really got to have somebody that knows. What's, what's so time consuming about it? Well, um, there's lots of uh, federal requirements. There are lots of state requirements. There's statutes that have to be followed. There's uh, court cases that have given inmates particular rights to things. And uh, th- they've got nothing to do but sit there all day and figure out a reason to sue you. Uh, and they've all got families on the outside that all think that their particular inmate is entitled to special treatment of some kind. Sure, of course. Uh, you're responsible for their medical, so you got to get them to the doctor and to the dentist, and then you've got to make sure their clothes are washed, and you got to feed them three times a day, and you got to have a certain amount of space for each inmate. And uh, you know, people are coming, they're going, their time's up, they got to get out. Somebody's brought in, somebody's got to go to court. Uh, you know, the judge wants this inmate over there now. Uh, there are just so many things people don't think about, and right. you know, when the weather's bad, you still got to get people there. Uh, when the water goes out, still got to get people there. Uh, when the power goes off and it's too hot or too cold because there's a, a range that you can't keep them, you have to keep the inmates in or you know, they got to move. It uh, doesn't matter if there's three inches of ice that knocked the power lines out. Uh, if it gets cold, they got to go somewhere that's warm. Uh, so running the jail is a big part of it. You know, uh, Of course, the criminal stuff that goes on, uh, everything from homicides to you know somebody damaged my mailbox, uh, and people get more upset about the damaged mailbox than they do the homicides. Um, making sure the civil papers are served, uh, issuing gun permits. Um, uh, there are just so many little things, signing alcohol permits, uh, talking to the public that comes in. Uh, you know, you get 100 phone calls a day, and like I said earlier, nobody's calling to tell you what a good job they think you're doing. Oh, yeah, I'm sure of that. Uh, Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we need to just call the sheriff's office and tell them they're doing a good job today. I'm sure they would appreciate that. They'd probably think it was a prank call. Yeah, they'd probably take my number down. I want to know what I was up to. Uh, but, uh, you know, that was one thing I loved about the job is you knew you were going to be busy, but you never knew exactly what you were going to be dealing with that day. Mm. You know, I mean, you go to work one morning and you got an airplane crash. Uh, mm. In fact, we had two in one weekend. What? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, that you never expected any of those things. All right. Uh, Did you ever have anybody escape from jail? We had a guy one time that got out of the building, but he never got out of the parking lot. Oh, okay. So, how in the world did he get out? Well, you don't have to tell me exactly. I suppose you don't have to tell me exactly how he got out, but was it something he did that nobody was expecting, or did he? No, we, it wasn't like were, you see on TV where he, you know, he took a spoon and made him a hole in the wall and escaped that way. There was a, some folks there doing some maintenance work, uh, and they left the door uh, ajar that should not have been. And uh, he he had been there enough that he knew the layout of the building, so he mm-hmm. snuck out of there and then climbed up onto the roof, jumped off, broke his ankle. So. He never made it out of the front parking lot, but that's the closest I came to an escape. Uh, wow. Now, we did have five at one time that broke out when I was at the sheriff's office, but I wasn't the sheriff at the time. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, so was that? are you saying that's Mr. Watson on his watch? <laughs> it happened while he was sheriff, but it was not his fault that it happened. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, man. Uh, 
So, uh, I mean, being the sheriff, being the public face of the sheriff's office, right? Not the mm. sheriff's department. Right. Um, and there's a, a real distinction there that people don't understand. A lot of people use the term sheriff's department, uh, but the sheriff is a separate elected office. Uh, a police department works for the town board or the town manager, mm. the mayor. You know, the sheriff doesn't That's really right. work. You wouldn't for, answer to the county commissioners then. We had to work with the county commissioners, sure. but we didn't work for the county commissioners. And so, you know, as a separate, I always said, I've got people said, well, you don't have a boss. And so, yeah, I got 70,000 of them. Yeah. Uh, if you don't believe it, come try to eat lunch with me one day. You know, because everybody's always wants, will tell you their thoughts on things. Um, but uh, mo- most people don't get that distinction but that's one thing that sheriffs in north carolina are very sensitive about is it's not a department it's an office that makes sense so you the sheriffs the north carolina sheriff's association Mm -hmm. are you're the president i was was the president right and what does that that association is all of the 100 counties their sheriff is Mm -hmm. a part of that association right and you guys meet routinely and talk about how to set up a better speed trap what's, what's going on there <laughs> most of it is training uh and usually it's whatever the current events of the day are you know it's uh um dealing with mental commitments or some new law that's come out about issuing gun permits or and we do exchange ideas about uh most sheriffs don't do a lot of traffic so we don't do really speed traps but we do talk about you know how have you dealt with say the internet cafes in your uh um, jurisdiction or you know what are you seeing in terms of uh, violence at school and you know what are the things that you all are trying new in the community to get people more involved and to you know give you information how um, do you deal with internet cafes that's a zoning issue isn't it well the problem that we always had was uh and it's the same thing with um like um, synthetic marijuana is that the legislature moves very slowly just by its nature uh, so they would pass a law. Some really smart person would figure out how to change just enough of what they're doing to make it legal again so the legislature has to create another law. So what you'd have to do really is just find the law, try to apply it to whatever a particular uh, business is doing. Um, and usually uh, when, when we were dealing with those things, we just took a big sweep and just knocked them all out at one time uh, over the course of a couple of weeks. Uh and it got expensive for them, so they went somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some places just ignore it and just let it happen. But, you know, it was just becoming too big of an issue okay. for us here. Uh, but, you know, the Sheriff's Association also does things like uh, help assist other sheriffs. Uh, in Pasqua Tank, when they had the shooting down there recently, uh, a lot of people get uh, sent down there to help with things when they're, you know, the civil unrest and riots or after hurricanes or tornadoes. Um, they also uh and that's the sheriffs not state highway patrol or state troopers it's uh sheriffs sending help to other sheriffs okay yeah um what what so i I feel like i may have an uh, an idea of how some of this stuff operates but i think it'd be better explained from you and it's kind of from sheriffs helping sheriffs being this that we have several different policing entities in the state right mm-hmm. we've got the highway patrol the state troopers we've got local police departments you've got county sheriff's departments offices excuse mm-hmm. me and 
I'm sure there's a couple other I'm leaving out. SBI, SBI. LE, so, uh, so the, Wildlife, Park Rangers. The, the interaction between all those people and the different groups and some being at the state level and local level and county level. And so how do all of you guys interact together? And is there, you know, on TV you always see one department doesn't get along with the other one. Is that Does that stuff happen in real life or is everybody kind of on the same team? A lot of it has to do with personalities. Um, uh I always got along really well with everybody that we worked with. and We had a lot of state help. We had a lot of federal help. Um, you know, we had the guys we worked with locally because here, you know, we've got Elkin, we got Pilot Mountain, we got Dobson, we got Mount Airy Police Departments. Um, you know, they were responsible for what went on in the cities. Uh, if we needed help out in the county, they would come help us. Uh, you know, we're responsible for what's out here. You know, if they needed uh, if, uh another agency needed help you know mount area would come help pilot mountain we'd come help everybody just kind of worked together because we were a small group of people there right. weren't many of us and we were all in the same boat and uh, and a lot of us knew each other went to rookie school together grew up together uh you know have family connections so um and when you're working with the uh other outside agencies either state or federal uh a lot of it depends on you know what their attitude is coming in but for the most part, everybody just comes to work and does the job and and gets along pretty well. Uh, doesn't mean you don't ever have a disagreement, but you can disagree and still get along. Sure. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, being a, that the sheriff's the – I mean, you're the public face of, you know, what goes on. Tell me a, tell me a story that comes to mind about uh, – I mean, tell me. I mean, I mean, I'm in, I'm not interested in in any kind of story you're willing to share about any of your experiences because they're they're very interesting. Um, but maybe a, a cold case or you know something that you guys were able to solve over, you know that 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 was cold and wasn't anymore or any kind. Maybe being as the being as the face. I mean, you live in the community. Uh, the same community that you might be arresting somebody in. I mean, is there ever been any kind of run-ins? I don't want, I mean, I don't want to say at your house, but I mean, well, yeah, there have, but you know, not, not necessarily in a negative sense. Um, you know, the Cole case, probably the, you know, the most famous one, the most recent one was Rhonda Blaylock case where the little girl was uh, killed right outside of pilot mountain here. Uh, we opened that one up started working it, uh, made a lot of headway in it and uh, the arrest was made after i left uh but you know everybody that was a part of that one was very proud of it you know it was from uh from 1983 mm. uh so what so, happened that made the made it come back to light again uh we had a detective d sims uh who had gotten had heard about the case from johnny ray belton who was chief deputy when i was hired uh, he had been involved in it back years ago when it first started, and he wound up uh, um, after when uh, Connie Watson came in as sheriff. Uh, Johnny Ray was no longer chief deputy, but he was a detective until he retired. Uh, and he was one of those guys with just a, a huge memory and a big brain. And they started talking about it, and then uh, D kind of picked it up and started working on it. And then she came and, and did a little presentation and said, you know, we want to do this. Um, and, you know, we all started looking at it and said, well, it's probably got some potential. So, uh, the SBI came in and helped us on that one. And, uh, uh, 
the case is over now. The guy's been convicted. Uh, he's in prison. But uh, what it really came down to was uh, a um, SBI evidence technician that went back over some evidence and found a little bitty, tiny, almost invisible to the naked eye spot of blood. Uh, and we were able to do some DNA work on that. Uh, and it led us to the guy. Huh. Uh, so uh, he went and uh, he pled guilty uh, not very long ago. It hadn't been uh, just a few months ago. He pled guilty and he's in prison now. Uh, but looking at the, the crime scene photos and the autopsy photos and you know, the, the age of the girl at the time, and I, I got to meet her mother before her mom passed away, uh, that was one that brings a lot of satisfaction to know that you were part of bringing that together. Hmm. Um, but as far as people coming to the house, uh, that's uh, <laughs> my family has a lot of funny stories about that. Um, there was uh, one particular guy who I had grown up with that we were friends. That he he we kind of took separate paths. He got in some trouble along the way, and I you know, went the other direction. And it seemed like I, we were constantly running into each other you know uh professionally mm, not good so <laughs> Got it. Uh, but uh i had <laughs> at the time i had a warrant for him and i talked to his mom and dad and said if you see him tell him i got a warrant for him I, so i was getting ready to go to work one day i worked second shift and i was uh in the bathtub heard a knock on the door and there was nobody home but me so i yell you know who is it and he yells back and says tells me who it is I said, well, you're under arrest. Come in and sit down. I'll be out in a minute. Turn on the TV if you want to. So I got out of the bathtub and got dressed, got my uniform on. He's sitting in there in the living room watching TV. I said, you ready to go? Yeah, I guess. So he gets in the car and, and goes with me. Um, I just a couple of weeks ago, well, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife and I were outside early one Saturday morning uh, trying to get some work done before it got hot, and this – Vehicle pulls in. Uh, she said, who's that? And I said, I don't have any idea. And he pulls in. It turns out a guy that, that we had sent to prison years ago that had just gotten out, and he just wanted to come by and tell me that he was doing good since he got out and say hello. Um, don't you get nervous? Well, a lot of it has to do with how you treat people. Yeah. Uh, just because you put somebody in jail doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that there's bad feelings because they know they're wrong. Sure. Uh in fact, I found out early on you can write somebody a ticket and they're going to hate you till the day you die. You can lock them up for murder and there's no hard feelings. Uh, but probably the best example of that is uh, my mom passed away uh, back in 1995. Um, she was in the hospital about a week, and so you know, I was down there mostly, and by the time we were you know, she had passed away. The, the service was done. People had left. I was completely exhausted. And I was at the house by myself. I sat down in my recliner, and I just kind of kicked my feet back and just, you know, take a deep breath. The phone rang. I picked it up. Said, you have a collect call from the North Carolina Department of Corrections. Will you accept the charges? Sure. It was a guy I'd sent to prison. He said, hey, man, just heard about your mama passing. I just wanted to call and tell you I was sorry. We talked a few minutes, hung up. I sat back down in my recliner. Phone rings. <laughs> Pick it up. Collect call from North Carolina Department of Corrections. Will you accept the charges? Word had gotten around. People that I'd sent to prison were calling just to say, hey, sorry about your mama. Uh, 
But I think a lot of that goes back to how you treat people. Just because you're arresting them doesn't mean you got to mistreat them. Yeah, well, that's a good good for you. Yeah, and that's you know I have always found that, uh, uh, but you know, just because a guy's committed a crime does not mean that uh, yeah. that you can't treat him decently. And I suppose people can change too over time. Uh, and the ones that you know that you have had problems with physical confrontations or whatever even with that you know if if you do things the way you should do them and you know you're not don't get carried away and you know usually there's no hard feelings to the end of those either in fact i had a guy um i hadn't been sheriff but just a few days there was a guy that was a a, a known outlaw from flat rock that we dealt with my entire career uh and i hadn't seen him in years because he'd been in prison well the secretary comes in and says Tells me his name, says he's out here and wants to see you. And I thought, well, yeah, knowing that the, the history that not just I had, but he had with all law enforcement. To a duel or something? Well, I actually, I said, well, tell him to come on in. And I put my gun in my lap under my desk. And he came walking in. I, like I said, I hadn't seen him in years. He was walking with a cane. He sat down at my desk and I said, uh, what can I do for you? He said, you remember that night that y'all chased me out through Flat Rock in the car and he went through this whole long story that wound up with an armed confrontation we'd had in a, a pasture in the middle of the night uh, with cows all around us. I said, yeah, I remember that. And he said, well, you remember the night that there was a big fight out there at the crossroads at Flat Rock and he went through and we had had a, a physical altercation that night? And I said, I remember that too. And he went through three or four things and finally I said, what can I do to help you? He said, oh, nothing. I just got to thinking about old times, and I thought I'd come by and say hello. <laughs> <laughs> and we sat there and talked, and we laughed, and, you know, it's just, uh, Can't uh, make that up. No, you can't, and people don't believe that. But really, um, I, I've not had that experience of having uh, um, people that I was afraid would come back on me, really. Okay, well, that's good. Mm. That's good. So you – recently retired from the sheriff's office because you were asked by the governor to join the parole commission. Right. All right. So, I mean, tell me, I mean, that seems like a, a pretty substantial ask and you're working down there working for the governor. I mean, what, what all does, what, what's that title and what all does that entail? Well, the title is North Carolina parole commissioner. Um, but that, that it, again, is another story. Uh, that I'm just full of. So you tell me at any time that you're tired of hearing stories. I'd actually been uh, the, the Secretary of um, Public Safety, Eric Hooks, who just took another job with FEMA uh, in D.C. now. But he was being confirmed by the Senate. And so he had asked that some of the sheriffs come just as support that there while they're having the hearing to confirm him. Um, so I was one of a group of sheriffs that went. And, you know, we, uh, I was on my way back out of Raleigh. My phone rings, and I could see when it came up on my phone that it was the governor calling. Um, normally, when the governor calls, that means he's coming to town or, you know, there's some issue that somebody's contacted him about. Most people yeah. probably don't have yeah. the governor's number saved in their cell phone. <laughs> A lot of sheriffs do. <laughs> uh, so I answered the phone, and he said, uh, uh, Sheriff, how are you? You know, and we were talked for a minute, and he said, I'd like to point you to the parole commission. I said, no. you do realize you've called Graham, right? <laughs> he said, I know who I've called. <laughs> uh, 
And I said, well, let me talk to my wife about it, you know, and, and, and but, you know, we, we talked just for a few minutes and I, I told him I'd get back to him. Um, and I was really struggling with this decision because I loved the sheriff's office. I miss it every day. Um, but, uh, this was one of those opportunities that just doesn't come along forever. Uh, so I talked to Melissa and, and I'd promised him I would give him an answer by, uh, Monday. So on the way to church Sunday morning, we were talking and I said, you know, I got to give him an answer. What am I going to do? And, uh, she was, she was not going to tell me what to do, but you know, she would be supportive either way. She always has been everything I've ever done. Uh, so we started the church service that morning. The preacher came in in a totally different format than, than the preacher does every Sunday. Um, this is the way the service began. Without any singing or anything, the preacher walks to the pulpit and says, Abraham and Sarah were perfectly happy with the life that they had. They had their family. They had their home. They had their land. And the Lord said, I'm going to send you on a journey. And I'm going to bless it. And I looked over at her, and she looked at me, and I said, well, I guess we know what the answer to that is. Wow. Uh, so I called the preacher after church, and I said, I can't tell you what it is right now, but you'll know by tomorrow afternoon. Your sermon was for nobody but us today. <laughs> uh, so the next day I called and said, okay, you know, we're going to make that move. Uh, and so that was uh, – I, I'd never – the house where we live now in Siloam is the only place I'd ever lived. I'd never been anywhere else. You know, I grew up there and, and been there since then. So it was a – and the one thing I did tell Melissa about that was you know, the thing that scared me the most was I was afraid that it would become a job because at the time I was like 52 years old and had never had a job as far as I was concerned. I never got up not wanting to go to work in the morning. Mm-hmm. I just loved it. Um but it's something that's completely different. And, you know, what we do really is um, if you were sentenced before 1994 uh, to a long prison sentence in North Carolina, at some point you become eligible for parole. And uh, there are four parole commissioners, and we make the decision whether or not you get paroled and, if you do, what the conditions are. Uh, it's just a straight up or down yes or no. Uh, after 94. We don't have any say about when you get out. That's predetermined, but we assign the conditions that you have that you follow when you get out. And then, if you violate those conditions, we issue warrants, we hold hearings, um, we meet with victims' families and with uh, inmates' families that are eligible for parole. Um, a lot of people ask me what I do now, and I tell them I sign my name. That's what I do. I spend all day long signing my name. Uh, but we do a. a a big variety of things, uh, but it all deals with inmates getting out and, and how they're supervised once they get out. Hmm. How are they supervised? Is that is done at the county level? With the probation and parole officers. Uh, same people that do probation also do uh, people that are on parole and people that are the post-release people, which means basically 2011, I guess it was, the legislature said uh, they're, they're – idea at the time was to try to um, help people integrate back into society that you get your sentence and we're going to cut nine months off of it uh, or a year depending on what the crime was or if it's a sex offense five years but we're going to let you out that much early but you're going to follow these conditions and be supervised uh, and it can be anything from electronic monitoring to you know having to take uh, uh, 
drug treatment, um, get psychological evaluations, take basic skills, learn how to read, write, get your GED. You know, there's tons of conditions. We can put almost any condition on people, and, and every case is looked at individually. To what does this person need to give them a chance to be successful? Mm-hmm. Wow. You started doing this in 17? Uh, May 1st of 2017. Okay. So just over four years in. And just recently got reappointed, so I'll be there uh, at least till 2025. Okay. That's interesting stuff. I mean, it sounds like you miss the sheriff's office. I do. And I th- if you stayed 100 years, I think you'd miss it. You know, you miss the, the people that you worked with. You miss doing the job. Uh, sure, every day is different. And you miss being at home. You know, uh, um, this is where I'm, I tell people my, my hind parts are in Raleigh, but my heart's still in Surrey County. Okay. So you've been in law enforcement for a long time. Over the duration of your career, I mean, have you – we started seeing a shift in the people and they how I guess how they act um, what have you seen and why have people started acting differently towards law enforcement specifically I think it's uh, probably just a culmination of a general uh, resentment or lack of authority uh, that went back to like we were talking to earlier uh, even with school or with uh, you know, in the community that, you know, people, um, uh, th- there was a time that, you know, if, an, if well, I had these experiences. Uh, a lot of times if, if I caught a kid doing something in a car that was just really stupid, uh, that rather than write them a ticket that's uh, going to come out of their mom and dad's pocket uh, or, or maybe cost them their license depending on what they were doing, I just uh, give him one of my cards and say, "Have your dad call me tonight? Here's my home number, and if he doesn't call me, there'll be a ticket in the mail in the morning." Uh, and you'd call and say, "You know, well, I stopped your son today. He was doing 90 miles an hour. Uh, he's gonna kill somebody. I just wanted you to know." Uh, and they'd say, "Thank you so much for calling me. I appreciate you not writing him a ticket. We'll take care of it." Uh, now, if you say that, it's, well, can you prove he was doing 90 miles an hour? And do you have him on film doing 90 miles an hour? And why did you stop him and not anybody else that might have been, you know, it's that, that whole attitude of uh, taking any responsibility for uh, things that are done wrong uh, or admitting when you've done something wrong uh, mm-hmm. instead of owning up to it, trying to find a, a technical challenge to it. Uh, um and the expectations that people have out of law enforcement are so unrealistic. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with shows like CSI, where they've got you know, a $40 million crime lab and people that are just sitting around there hoping something happens that day that they get to do something. You don't have a $40 million crime <laughs> lab in Dobson? Uh, I always told the commissioners at budget time, I said, you have to remember, people want a CSI sheriff's office, but they want it on an Andrew Griffith budget. There you go. Uh, they want got a level of service they want and a level they're willing to pay for, and those two are nowhere near each other, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thing. So it, just for clarification, the sheriff's office is not like the Andy Griffin show. Well, it may not be totally unlike it either <laughs> at times, <laughs> whether you want to admit it or not. We right? do. <laughs> uh, so. What is Give a Kid a Christmas? And this is something that you started, right? And so so what is that and how 
how can people help or what can we do? What can people do to get involved? Well, when you say start it, that's very generous. It was very unintentional. This was one of those things, again, that I am careful not to take any credit for because this was something that uh, the Lord has led me through. Uh, when I first started teaching there, um, I was at a particular elementary school one day, and uh, a new class, new year. And I noticed every time I would, I would go to each class one day a week. So every week when I went in, there was this one kid at this one school that was always wearing the same set of clothes. Uh, it was a, a, a pair of green sweatpants and a T-shirt. didn't matter what time of year it was, what the weather was. And the sweatpants, the, the most polite way I can describe those is they were obscenely small. And I made mention of it to one of the teachers, and they said, I was in the fifth grade classroom now. They said, that kid's wore the same set of clothes to school every day since the third grade. And I thought, well, you know, we ought to be able to do a little better than that. Um, so I called uh, two people, called Ralph Hardy at Hardy Brothers Trucking, called Johnny Bruner at Pine Hill Farm Supply, and said, uh, you know, I was a, a 26-year-old deputy sheriff. I didn't have any money. Uh said, you know, can you guys help? And they said, sure. So uh, I went by both places, picked up some money, uh, went to Walmart, did not, didn't know a living soul that worked at Walmart at the time, but I found a manager. Uh, turned out uh, we became good friends uh, years later, um, or over the years, Wayne Mosley. And I said, yeah, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing here. Can you help me? Well, he took the money that we had, which wasn't a lot, you know, $100 maybe. Uh, and I left there with armloads of stuff. And uh, we made arrangements to get it to the kid in a, a private way so as not to embarrass him. Sure. And, uh, you know, I didn't think, you know, that that was just one of those things. Well, you know, another need would come up and somebody would say, uh, can you help with this? And so I, you know, we'd, and Wayne was just great with Walmart. I, I'd call and say, you know, this kid needs some shoes. Uh, we'll just come get a pair of shoes. They don't need any money. Just come get a pair of shoes. Uh, well, then it got, you know, the more you were around, you thought, well, you know, maybe we should like do a kid at each school at Christmas. So we did that. And, you know, we had, I think it was 13 elementary schools at the time. Uh, well, you know, if we can do 13, yeah, maybe we can do 26. Uh, well, shoot, you know, if we did 26, that easy. You know, next year we'll do 50. Uh, and just over the years, it's just grown and grown and grown and grown where, you know, we're doing uh, 750, 800 kids a year. Um, and that's and, locally here in Surrey County. Right, yep. Um, it's uh, Our goal is to provide food, clothes, and toys. Uh, most people don't think about the fact that uh, the kids that we are serving – Everybody's anxious to get out of school at Christmas, uh, except these kids, because they get free lunch at school, and they get breakfast, and at home they may not eat. Uh, and if you're out of school for two weeks, uh, where's that food coming from? Uh, and they're not getting anything for Christmas, uh, and they probably don't have heat in the house, or they may not. So the idea of being home for two weeks is not something that they look forward to. Um, 
So uh, through Walmart and through the Surrey County Schools and the Sheriff's Office, um, we started this, and it's just grown and grown and grown. Uh, we absolutely couldn't do it without Walmart. Um, and Steve Marshall, this manager over there now, is, does a great job helping us also. They help us with the food. They help us with everything that we do. Um, and the, the money is generated just strictly through donations. We just ask people to help. And, uh, you know, it's gone from calling those two guys and, you know, they'll give you 50 bucks a piece to, uh, you know, it's, uh, we try to spend $125 a child on the food, I mean, on the, the clothes and the toys. And then uh, each food box is uh, $70, $80 worth of stuff. So it takes a lot of money to make it happen. Um, but uh, I, and I could tell you stories about miracles that have happened in that just the rest of the day till people are, I could tell you about stories till Christmas time. Um, Let's hear one right now. What's your, uh, what's, what's one that just jumps out? Well, let me tell you two. Okay. The first one, uh, sometimes I get a little emotional with these. So I, uh, can, I mean, I, I have little kids, um, so I, I just could not imagine. We were having one of those years where, um, it was just hard to raise money. You know, people were helping, but it was when things had kind of turned down and people that were giving were giving about half what they'd been giving every year. And, of course, we had more kids than we were used to with, in those economic times. So we were running very close on money. And, uh, you know, we'd get requests in, and, and I'd say, yeah, we're going to do it. And uh, my treasurer was going nuts because we didn't have any money to do it. So we were getting – we got down to shopping day. Walmart just – pretty much gives us a run of the store on shopping day they just let us come in and, and they set up private lines for us and call in help and you know it's amazing what they do um we got done they gave me the bill and uh my treasurer's standing there with the the checkbook and i wrote the check and signed it and she was looking at me with these great big eyes because she knew it and i did too that we didn't have enough money to cover that check we were a few hundred dollars short. So I left there, came over here to the golf course at Pilot Mountain. I'd been asked to speak to the uh, uh, Civic Club there. Uh, when I left, uh, my treasurer, uh, she says, you know, what are we going to do? I said, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. She said, how do you know? you got to have faith. It's going to be fine. She was the bean counter. I was having faith, and she was realizing that yeah, the sheriff of the county just wrote a bad check to Walmart for $75,000. <laughs> uh, so at the end of my uh, talk over there, uh, one of the guys comes over and hands me an envelope. The sealed said, here, this is a donation for you know, the, the, what you're doing at Christmas. So I run back to Dobson, give it to the treasurer, and I say, go put that in the bank to cover that check. She said, how much is it? I said, I don't know. She said, well, how do you know it's going to cover it? I said, it'll cover it. She said, well, how do you know? I said, I know, it'll cover it. So she opened the check, and we were, say, I don't know, $385 short. Uh, the check was for $400. So she goes and deposits the check. Well, and we're done. That's it. We're out of money. You know, we're just down to nothing. And literally, at one point, we were down to $4 and something in that account. Man. Uh, we had one more name that came in. This was like the day before Christmas Eve, and we checked, and it was legitimate need. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to Winston because I can go through down there. If I go to Walmart and Mount Airy, I'm going to stop and talk to everybody I see, and I can't get done. 
Oh, we didn't have any money. I had the checkbook. We didn't have any money in the bank. Got four dollars and something. So I'm at Winston, standing in line. I've driven all the way down there, got my stuff together, and I'm standing there thinking, oh, not only am I right, I'm writing a bad check, I'm gonna do it in another county. You know. There you go. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm standing there in line and just saying, Lord, you know, I just I don't know. I mean, this is you know, and I hear this faint voice in the back say, Graham. And I thought. I just tried to ignore it because I, and finally it, a little closer, and I turned around and looked. It was a girl I went to high school with, hadn't seen her since high school. She said, what are you doing here? And so I kind of gave her a, a real quick version of what was going on. She said, you know, I've been thinking I should do something for somebody at Christmas. Let me just pay for this stuff. So she paid him. I walked out the door. Said, Once again, Lord, thank you for that. Mm. Uh and, you know, just story after story after story after story where it's, it's just come from nowhere, you know, that you just have uh, – you just don't know how it's going to happen. You just know it is. Um, but one of the one of the examples that uh, – and this story takes a couple of minutes, but I, I think it's worthwhile anyway. Um, we, we're already done or almost done with, with everything that we had to do, and uh, I was uh, – Sitting there at the office, uh, phone rang. Uh, this was before I was sheriff. Um, and uh, the woman on the end of the phone was telling me, said, you know, what about Christmas? And I'm like, yeah, we're really running short on time and close and everything. She said, well, my son plays with this little boy. He's a neighbor of ours. And I heard them talking. And my son asked, him, asked this other boy what he wanted for Christmas, and he said, what he really wanted for Christmas this year was a Christmas tree. Uh, his dad had been hurt at work and had uh, been out of work for a year. And last year they didn't have a Christmas tree, but he really wanted a Christmas tree this year. So I called uh, Hugh Mills, who was one of our local attorneys that lives out there at. I know uh, Hugh Mills well. Yeah. Well, his family had a Christmas tree farm this time. He said, Hugh, I need a Christmas tree and I don't have any money. He said, well, you know, just come get the tree. So I called my wife and said, get the kids ready because when I get home this evening, we got to go to Hugh Mills. we got to pick up a tree and told her kind of what had happened. Several of us threw in a little money, and we, uh, one of the ladies at the sheriff's office went to Walmart and got some decorations and lights and stuff, brought them back. So in my haste to get around, get all this done because it you know, it's Christmas, it's dark at 5 o'clock, I get home, uh, grab my wife and kids, they get in the truck, I'm still wearing my, uh, uh, like a sweatshirt with a badge on it and a gun, badge on my belt. Didn't think anything about it. It's what I wear every day. Uh, looking back at it now, probably would have been a, a good idea to give somebody a heads up we were coming. But we, we drove to this house, and I went up and knocked on the door, and this guy comes to the door. And I said, uh, is Jacob here? That was the little boy's name. And he had this really strange look on his face, and he's like, can I ask why? And it dawned on me, here I stand with a badge and a gun, and this is a 10-year-old boy. I'm asking for him. This must be his dad. So I kind of gave him a real quick version. I said, you know, I got a tree out here on the truck. I just thought he might like to help us get it out and put it together. And so he said, okay. So, you know, he comes out, and we got the saw, and he and I are getting the stand on it and everything done. We get it in the house, and he's just elated, and he's starting to decorate the tree. So I got his dad to step into the kitchen, and he had a little sister. You know, I didn't know about until <clears throat> we got there. <clears throat> excuse me 
I said, uh, if you got any idea what your kids like to have for Christmas, we'd like to get them some Christmas presents. He said, I can't let you do that. I said, what do you mean you can't let me do that? And he said, I just, you know, I appreciate the tree, but I, I, I just can't let you do gifts for my kids. And normally I would not have talked to somebody like this in their own house that I had just met, you know, but I just, I said, and I don't even know why I said it. I just said it without thinking. I said, don't let your pride get in the way of your children having a Christmas. We have the means to help you. Yeah. Maybe someday you can help somebody or do something for them, but let us do this for your kids. Well, he finally agreed. And so we got presents and got them to him and everybody was happy that Christmas. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, hadn't thought anything about this in, you know, in months. And uh, I'd had a particular bad day at the sheriff's office, like, you know, you had once in a while. So I went home, and all I wanted was just to be left alone. Didn't anybody talk to me. <laughs> you know, just I just would take a little bit here. and Went in, threw my coat off, sat down. Hadn't just had got sat down in the chair. The phone rang at home after work hours. <laughs> and I picked up the phone, and this voice on the other end said, you know, is this Graham Atkinson? I said, yes, it is. Yeah. Are, are you the one that does the Christmas stuff? And honestly, I, if I tell the truth about it, you could have probably seen the blood pressure pop out the top of my head because I thought this is somebody wanting something, and I, I just wasn't in the mood, you know. Mm-hmm. I said, it is. What can I do to help you? He said, well, you remember last year bringing the Christmas tree, a little boy named Jacob? I said, yes, I do. He said, well, this is his dad. I said, okay. He said, "Um, you remember what you told me in the kitchen? And I thought about it, and I said, well, roughly. I don't know exactly, but I I know what the point of it was. He said, well, right after Christmas, uh, my workman's comp came through, and I'd been out of work for a year, and they back paid me, and now they're paying me my salary, and I got my full disability. And... uh, Everything's great. You know, we're back on our feet and doing good. He said, uh, I remember you had invited me to go to church with you. And I said, I did. And he said, well, the reason I hadn't been is my back hurts so bad that I can't go to church and sit for that long period of time. And he said, but I did start watching on TV. And he said, uh, I found a little kid that needed help this Christmas, and I'm taking care of them myself. And I just wanted to call and let you know. Well, I felt like, you know, about a half an inch tall. Cause, uh, and I thanked him, and, you know, we hung up. And, uh, that was several years ago. Uh, and I always thought, you know, that really, I guess, sums up what you hope that the nature of that program is, is that. Uh, Absolutely. That, you know, people, not only do they get out of it, do they get Christmas, but they get the fact that, Christmas is about celebrating the birth of our Savior and his admonishment to us was to take care of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, then several, uh, just uh, right after I'd left uh, the sheriff's office and started in Raleigh, my wife was still here working at the time. Uh, she was in a drugstore at Dobson. Uh, and this man walks over to her and says, hey, I'm Jacob's dad. Uh, and they talked for a few minutes about uh that experience that they had had and, and how his life had been changed around it. Uh, so that was one of the things that, you know, you always you know, started with a, a neighbor uh, that cared enough to try to make arrangements for a kid to have a Christmas tree. 
Yeah. Mm. Wow. That's, I mean, that's awesome. Mm. That's awesome. So how, how can we, how can somebody get in touch with you? How can somebody help you? Well, we'll, uh, we're actually having an, uh, when I left the sheriff's office, we, uh, kind of changed the way we did the program. Uh, not knowing in the future, uh, what would happen with it. So, uh, we created a foundation, um, that's the Sheriff Atkinson's Give a Kid a Christmas Foundation. Uh, there are people from the school system that are there. There are uh, some business leaders in the community. Uh, people, you know, the sheriff is the chairman of the board, and that was the way the bylaws were drawn up, that the sitting sheriff would be the chairman as long as he agreed. Um, so we're having a meeting uh, next Friday uh, to get started, but, but basically it's the same way we do it every year. The one thing we did different last year because of COVID uh, and we couldn't have you know, their community events that raise money that we don't organize, but they do it and they give the money to the program. A lot of those couldn't happen last year. So uh, we did a, a old Jerry Lewis-style telethon live on Facebook and um, raised uh, $25,000 that night. Wow. Uh, so that's one thing that we'll be doing. But we'll be getting information out. Basically, it's uh, call the sheriff's office or call the county school office uh, if you're interested in, in helping and we need, uh, we don't take toys and we don't take clothes because, and sometimes people have gotten aggravated with me over the years because of that. But, but here's the deal. Um, these kids are no different than my kids or your kids or anybody else's. What they want for Christmas is what they want. They don't want something close to it or they don't want the best you can do. They want what they want. Uh, and rather than try to take items in and then match it to a particular kid we can uh get the information of what the kid wants including their sizes and colors and shapes and whatever else and if we've got the cash we can go to walmart and get it and we don't have to have as much room to store things uh logistically it's just a problem trying to do that much stuff so uh we ask people just for uh for cash donations and you know if you want to participate and you can't do that you can come help shop you can help pack food boxes we'll be getting the dates together to do that here just shortly uh and we can get that word back out through facebook and media and, and you know we try to spread that around if you've got a boy scout troop that wants to put food boxes together or you've got uh, a church youth group um or if you just want to volunteer we have people there that uh, on food box day from you know four or five years old on up to, uh, you know, in their seventies, eighties sometimes. Mm. Uh, and, um, uh, shopping day, we always need help with that because we've got 700 kids to shop for and we got to get in and get out, uh, and get that done. And we don't have the dates on that yet, but, okay. uh, and any group that wants to be part of it and help, you know, we've had fire departments that do, uh, our fire department does a pancake breakfast and, uh, Billy Smith and uh, his wife Frankie put on a play at the uh, Ruiton Building in Eldora every year. Uh, raise a lot of money there. Um, there are other groups and organizations that just send checks and uh, and send people. So it really is a community event. Uh, we've we've worked hard to make it into that. That it's not a sheriff's office thing and it's not a school thing, and it's certainly not a, a Graham Atkinson thing. It is. The people in Surrey County that are able taking care of the people that need the help. Right. Well, that's awesome. I, I appreciate you sharing that with us, and we'll be sure and share that too. So, I got one final question for you. Okay. You're smiling, so it must be a good one. If you had one thing 
that you could go back and change or a situation that you would have handled differently, what would that have been? Hmm. You know, there's like a million things, I'm sure, that I could have done so much better than I did. Um, probably, and and without going into a lot of detail as not to embarrass uh, anybody, but, uh, well, I better leave that one alone. <laughs> because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Okay, please. Um, you know, to say that I don't know the answer to that makes it sound like I think I did everything perfect, but there, I, I, there's not one that comes to my mind right now that really stands out as being something. Uh, it would probably have to do with uh, any time that I ever lost my temper uh, and said something that I regretted saying later because uh, that happened once in a while. I try not to let it happen often, but once in a while it would happen. Uh any uh, deputies get into some mischiefs that they shouldn't have done? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, yes, and, you know, that that's one thing that I think um, people's expectations sometimes. Uh, we tried to hold people to a high standard, and we expected that of ourselves. But uh, one thing you have to understand is law enforcement has – they have to recruit from the human race just like every other job. And just because a guy's got a badge on uh, doesn't necessarily mean he's a good guy either. But, you know, uh, they're human and they make mistakes and sometimes they have bad days and sometimes they got other stuff going on in their life. And a lot of times they are so overworked and so just stretched to the point of breaking that uh, that they do things that they shouldn't do or they say things that, that they shouldn't do. Um, and 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 sometimes you know it's not that sometimes they just intentionally do things that you know uh, that they knew not to do. But I always learned to start those meetings uh, to make sure we were all on the same wavelength. But just by saying, before we get started, let's get one thing clear: we're in here because of something you did. We're not here because of something I did. I don't want to be here either. But because of what you did, now we're both here, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got to deal with it. Uh, and most of the time, uh, the the better officers um, would take that as a learning experience uh, and would try their very best not to be in that situation again. And the ones that didn't uh, were on their way out the door. I always said I, I never really fired anybody. They fired themselves. I just gave them the termination date mm-hmm. uh, because what they did was uh, – but anytime you've got, you know, I had 110 people. That's 110 personalities. It's 110 sets of problems. It's 110 attitudes. It's 110 egos. Uh, so, yeah, every day there's always something. Mm-hmm. And any sheriff or any administrator in law enforcement across the board will tell you the same thing. It doesn't matter if it's state, right. federal, local, whatever. When you're dealing with people, uh, sometimes things just don't go well. Sure. Well, I appreciate it. This oh, has been fantastic. I appreciate you doing this. Well, and thank you for conceiving this idea and then uh, putting it together and, and having the, the fortitude and the wisdom and the ingenuity to make it happen. I mean, this is uh, 
the, the stories that I've listened to that you've done, uh, you know, very interesting. And I am honored that you asked me to be part of this, uh, especially very early on with you getting started with it. And I'm going to be a regular listener. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. I'm also from Siloam, so <laughs> not many famous people from Siloam. <laughs> oh. Anything you want to leave us with? Oh, just um, I really believe that I am one of the most blessed individuals that have ever lived because I got the opportunity uh to do the job and do the work that I did in this county for over three decades. And I, I really sincerely believe that there is no better place in the world uh, as far as the people, their hearts, their attitudes, um, that, yeah, I, I've go other places and I've done other things and I've been, yeah, uh, traveled around, but uh, this is home. And uh, one of the big blessings of my life was being able to, to serve as in law enforcement and, and to serve as sheriff in Surrey County. So I have one more final, final question. <laughs> What's next? You know, I don't know, and and I hesitate to try to uh, to frame that because I had no idea that this what I'm doing now was coming. You know, that you're just, tied up in Raleigh through 2025. So right after that, I mean, well, that was this thing was, was Raleigh a, the first stop on the way to DC, or <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> I've I've worked hard to try to have a, a a decent reputation, and I don't think I want my name associated with any of those Probably folks true. up there. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, uh, to, to finish that that earlier thought, uh, I've also been blessed with a family that uh, allowed me to do the things, and you know, my wife took on the role of raising the children, and and my children had to put up with a lot of junk. Uh, that went along with that, but they, they've always supported me and loved me and look after me. So, um, maybe what's next is, uh, spending a lot more time with them. I don't know. We'll see. I'm sure whatever door the Lord opens, I'll try to have sense enough to step through. There you go. That's some good, good advice. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, and subscribe to our channel, wherever you get your podcast to be notified of new episodes. Remember to be on the lookout for new episodes at the first of every month. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review and comment on what you like the most. If you know someone who has a good story to tell or suggestions on how to improve, please email us at info at ncretold.com.